0: Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal.
1: Yeah. Boom. Hmm.
2: Well, anybody got anything or you want me to throw this out there?
1: Yeah, I say just go on and throw it out there. I Whatever. I have been reading the are you is oh is he getting is he getting the call? No. Oh we're supposed to be covering oh. for him. Oh oh that's right. That's, that's right. That's right. Okay. Um Here, you I'm got sorry. it. You just you just go on and dive in. I'm still here. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> huh?
2: um, okay, so this is more this isn't so much like an intellectual idea. It's more just an effective movement of the heart, but
0: I'll throw it out there see what's there. That's so you uh, dude, mushy modern priests. What about objective yeah. truth, man?
1: Yeah. Just just sentimentality.
0: Ever heard of it? Schleiermacher? Hey well, Schleier. Schleier. Hey, Schleier. have you heard of it? Did you just call me Schleiermacher? Schleiermacher. <laughs>
1: have you heard of <laughs> Diedrich von Hildebrinkst? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Friend of the cast, if if I remember correctly. Yeah, uh, family. Uh, yeah. What is truth though? Honestly, that's, mm. that was it. That was my thought. I was like, guys, have you ever thought about this? <laughs> what if something is true for me and not true for you? Yeah.
0: I don't think anyone's ever thought that or asked that question before. Right. Hmm. You might've just figured out the key to debunking religion. Right. Cause it, yeah, it's not about, it's not about answers
2: guys. It's about living. What if what I know? see
0: is green, you see as red? Yeah. There's nothing that's true. Right. It's all just, yeah, man. It's all true. (laughs) Everything is true. No, yeah. That's the the conclusion I don't get there, that everything is equally true. If that were the case, if relativism were actually the case, well, how would you say that it's true? Because it's predicated on that everything is equally true or false. But it's much more convincing to me that everything is therefore false. And we yeah. don't have any way to access objective truth. Our mind doesn't map to reality if everything is equally valid or invalid. But right. the it's idea a that pre- your truth and my truth are both fine is so unconvincing to me. It's a generous assumption that you just assume that everybody is right in
1: the truth. Right.
0: Especially when everybody like- disagrees. <laughs>
1: Uh, <laughs> okay i can't do this my head hurts too bad today rob rob what's you, your sentiment rock and
0: roll
2: that might be better that was it that was it that's <laughs> what i wanted to talk about <laughs> no i'm kidding okay so i'm in my um i'm currently in my summer tradition three years running now of reading a mark twain book cool. for, over the summer yeah so i started uh i think a couple years ago i read uh, Wilson. Great. And then last summer read uh Huckleberry Finn. Great. And then this summer I'm reading his biography of Joan of Arc. Oh um, Mama. Which I had tried before and like wasn't able to get in <clears throat> excuse me. Wasn't able <clears throat> sorry about that. Wasn't able to get into it a couple of times, but this time really enjoying it. So I'll probably finish it within like a couple weeks or so. And uh anyway, so there's been a lot of parts that are just kind of amazing about this story. But there was one in particular, and I don't remember what battle it was in. Because she's kind of, she's like the well-established general of the the French army at at this point. She's like 17 and a half. Um, it's just this like, and that's kind of, I think that's why Twain was so enthralled by it was that It's just such an unbelievable story, but it's so well documented because especially because like of her trials afterwards um, that, yeah, it just it really is. It's it like blows you away to get into the story and to think about and everything. But so Joan of Arc, one, just I yeah, I don't really have words to kind of like put on her but there was this one story that he told in, in the book. Um, so it's, it's during this battle and they they like absolutely demolish the, you know, the English army at this one town or, or something like that. And somehow this um, is it, it kind of like, you know, just pawn of a of an English soldier. I can't remember what Twain's wording was, but he this is like a like the lowest level. Guy And the French is seemingly like really have all this like resentment towards towards the English and um, everything. And so somehow this guy gets like mortally wounded, this English guy. And anyway, Joan of Arc like went up to him and he's like laying there about to die. And Twain just tells the story of like she took his head in her arms and she just just kind of like knelt down and wept over him. And Twain's his language is like really beautiful with it. It talks about like he, he she just kind of like talked to him as a sister would like in his last in his last moments. And she she ordered someone to find a priest so he could get absolution. Um, And anyway, I was just really moved by like the image. And I think it's just the storytelling of how Twain tells it of she's so fierce, man. Like she's so fierce in in commanding the army and like people are dying in these battles and everything like that. And then she has like all these moments like that, um, that she would go up and just like weep over this guy and, and just kind of like console him into death and, and help him prepare for, for a happy death, even though he's he's the enemy. And anyway, I was just, I, I, it obviously just struck me. I have more to kind of pray through it with just as a, effective movement, but it's kind of thinking about that of, um, like, how do you, how do you try to, how do you try to, um, like evoke that out of yourself? Like to be just, you know, in life in, in today's world, like it's not the same type of wars being fought, obviously things, things like that, but just to be able to, to humanly say like, I don't know. I mean, you could even talk about like enemies in, in a way or certainly opponents, you know, like um, politically, humanly, like whatever, whatever it is of like, there's stuff in our world to like vehemently stand against, but then just kind of like knowing the line of, but like you gotta just that image of her like weeping with that guy and just kind of whispering to him as he, as he prepared for death and, Anyway, like I said, um I don't have it formulated, but I just thought it was such a cool image and such an amazing story of her. So I know Mets, you've read it. I don't know if you have any thoughts or anything like that.
1: Yeah, I mean the that that book is is so it's the most supernatural story that I've ever read before. Like just the the presence of God and the yeah. Incredibleness of, of the entire story. <laughs> and it, like you said, it's so well documented that I think that's what blew Twain away. He says it's his longest researched book, but, um, m- maybe like his favorite book that he ever wrote. Um, so he was clearly captivated by her story, but, uh, yeah, just this, this young girl who God uses and she's open to being used in this, like truly miraculous way from start to finish angels appear into her um where there's a couple of powerful moments where she has um like divine insight into certain things that proves her legitimacy in front of the king and she leads the french army at as a teenage girl i mean that is so unbelievable that's so unbelievable right now and then to have that happen you know, against, against the English. It's just, it's unbelievable. Um, yeah, it it makes me think of another story from within the book that, uh, she clearly just had a heart that was full of love that was able to fight for the things that she loved, which I mean, she loved France so much, but then was soft enough to be moved by, by real deal, sad things like real deal sadness. Um, so she wasn't hard-hearted, but she was strong, and kind of the way that the the soldiers would talk about her and around her when they were in battle, and then when they would come back to uh, camp together in the evening to, to eat together and to go to sleep, like they were very careful um, of living living a Christian life around her. Like she called these men to something more than you know, just the kind of usual soldier, um, bad behavior that you fall into when you have free time in between battles and in between wars and things. So yeah, this, this fierceness, but also like a tenderness that was present within her. Uh, I don't know what that's centered on. I, I mean, obviously Christ is the object of that, um, that ability to span the spectrum of feeling like that. Um, yeah, but it, it, everything about it just struck me as so supernatural. It's like the veil, the veil is thin in this story, um, which I know doesn't, doesn't get exactly to your question, but yeah, th- well, those listen, are my
0: initial thoughts. A couple of things that I've thought, and I, I did read it I think last year um, as well. I agree with both your assessments. Maybe what strikes me most about the encounter you're talking about with that British soldier is how the seeming contradiction between like how is this saintly girl a in charge of the army and b like in the throes of battle where there are people dying and um these are both christian countries and it's pre-reformation it's like the 1400s wasn't it so they're both catholic countries um and in fact it's I mean, it's a very complicated story cuz it's the church that burns her the british bishops that put her on trial and um there's also like gender things because she was wearing the, the clothes of a man, even when she was in prison and she wouldn't take off the armor because God told her not to. And or St. Michael, the archangel, it's like a very martial story. And we, I I think we can look on it anachronistically with our own, as we often do with history with our own standards and categories and try to understand it. But I think that's what Twain did nicely in the book is, even though he was a modern guy and he was even an atheist, um, pretty vocally. I think this was the only evidence to him like that would stand up to modern scrutiny. Uh, Although I think the gospels have shown that they stand up to scrutiny in terms of historicity, but um, even by the modern critical methods, but he was at least satisfied that the trials of Joan of Arc were legit. And um, he's like, this is the only person that's ever been like a real saint has totally lived for others you know, in the, in terms of the Christian ideal, everybody else has some ulterior motive of, of selfishness. Um, But she appeared to be completely at the service of God. And the fact that she was a soldier and she was, you know, riding into battle and apparently approved of this, you know, like C.S. Lewis has a nice essay on pacifism um, and how it would seem that as a Christian, you have to just oppose all war, all fighting all violence whatsoever but um he makes a good case why that's not always the case and it's in fact tempting to to simplify and just say that because it's easier uh, because that gives you an excuse not to go fight in a foxhole you know it's or a trench um and feel good about yourself because you're doing it on religious conviction but here was a situation where god called her to fight you know but at the same time always had her eyes fixed on jesus and she called the soldiers on her side to a closer christian life you know a lot of them didn't go to mass but then she would make them all go to confession and communion although not force them you know she was still just like by her example and there was a femininity too the fact that she was a woman and sort of this this figure that they wanted to reverence and um do honor by you know in that old medieval sense of having a lady who you know you served there was that aspect she just kind of created order and beauty and uh inspiration wherever she went like they felt like they could nobody could touch them as long as they had joan of arc but then to to have the presence of mind and heart to to be that to be there for that guy and not simply see him as an enemy soldier who good he's dying that's good um I think shows that that she she never lost her focus from Christ and what He was calling her to in every moment. Um, but the thing I'm thinking of too is especially with Joan of Arc, um, although she was so young, she never became a mother herself um, because she was killed. But I'm reading Hannah Coulter by Jaber right, Crow, uh, Wendell Berry. You guys both read Jaber Crow, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the only Barry that I've read. Well, um, Hannah Coulter is kind. It's not really a prequel, but it's the same universe of Port William. Jaber Crow's the barber in Port William, mm-hmm. little town in Tennessee. So Hannah grows up out, up outside of of Port William in a, a poor farm family. Her mom dies when she's little, and it's this woman looking back on her life, and. Um, uh, it's world war two and without spoiling it I'm in the first third of the book but she she kind of foreshadows a lot so you see it coming but the man she marries goes off and fights in world war two and dies but um she has his child and um she's born after he goes missing in action and there was this thing last night I read can I just read it to you guys it was a uh, i thought about motherhood um this is a male writer writing first person from a from a woman's perspective um which maybe is problematic by our standards today but it's it's incredible kind of like uh, till we have faces didn't c.s lewis write that with a pseudonym and people thought it was a woman who wrote it yeah but she talks about this baby being born um as kind of this healing presence for her because here she was living in grief and everybody around her was living in grief. She was living with her in-laws who had lost their only son and she would lost her young husband. And then this child comes in um, and she says to know that I was known by a new living being who had not existed until she was made in my body and by my desire and brought forth into the world by my pain and strength that changed me. And she says, she would wake up hungry in the night where she slept in her basket by my bed. I would turn on the light, change her diaper, and then turn the light off. The rest I did in the dark by feeling. I took her into bed with me and propped myself up with pillows against the headboard to let her nurse. As she nursed and the milk came, she began a little low contented sort of singing. I would feel milk and love flowing from from me to her as once it had flowed to me. It emptied me. As the baby fed, I seemed slowly to grow empty of myself, as if in the presence of that long flow of love, even grief could not stand. And the next thing I knew, I would be waking up to daylight in the room and little Margaret still sleeping in my arms. There's something very powerful to me about that, that like physical sacramentality of being emptied of yourself for the other. And particularly of the motherhood, like here was this new living being who knew me and needed me. And they, they were made in my body by my desire and brought, brought into the world by my pain. Um, that like the, the whole idea of motherhood just blows me away, man. It's like insane. And that image of Joan of Arc caring for that guy, it's just like, of course the woman's heart is like this, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. Does that make any sense? There's not much not words really to to say, but it's just something amazing that exists in the world.
2: Yeah, I like that. That's a good way to put it. Um something amazing that exists in the world. Um Yeah, that's good. And that's I, you know I I was kind of thinking, I mean, that's a beautiful uh Little snippet from from Barry. There, I don't have maybe an initial like, you know, thought um, to it, but just thinking like more stories from this Twain book on on Joan of Arc. But I, I like that notion of something amazing that exists in in the world because um, that's amongst how supernatural the story is in reading Twain's like biography and account of of her life um there is something just awing like about certain certain moments and see it is it is amazingly supernatural but like I thought how he kind of like intersperses the just the humanity of her as well and it's oftentimes like with her it's oftentimes with tears in this Joan of Arc story because she's still she's still like a 17 year old girl who's leading this army and so there's there's another account that i was it it was it didn't hit me maybe as much as the one of her holding this man dying but um like when she met the king and she had won these great battles already so the king like wanted to give her pretty much anything that she wanted and it embarrassed her and so like Twain described the account of like her becoming more and more embarrassed and her face like kept turning more red and eventually kind of turned purple. And she actually started crying because she was so embarrassed to like kind of be put on the spot by the king in, in this way, not embarrassed so much, but like, I guess in in a way, but just the attention like on, on herself and all she wanted to do, all she wanted from the king was for her, for him to go with her to, like, whatever town it was to receive. Dude, the king, king of is such a because, chump. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He, yeah. Chump is a good word for him. Um, but there's, there's other moments, and I, I don't have any other examples, but he just, he describes it of like she's moved to tears a lot. And, um, I, I don't know. I, I don't really have anything past that either, besides there's just an awe to it man of um so I, I like i would have never thought of that connection of like motherhood and and especially that account by by barry but it's not only something amazing that exists in the world but it's something that i'm just really really grateful does exist in the world
0: i guess there's another idea and maybe it expands it just outside of just motherhood and femininity but um I mean, the, the narrator is a is a woman and, you know, a lot of the men went off to fight and die in the war and she talks about how kindness carried them, you know, um, like I, it made me think of the, the pandemic a little bit. I mean, it's not anywhere near the kind of just like all these young men going off and, and dying and it was heartbreaking too as her, her husband was missing, you know, which I've There's no funeral. There's no, there's no even like closure that, oh, some soldier that was next to him saw that he died heroically and here's the letter and whatever. It was just like, okay, he's, he's gone, I guess. And he's, he's never coming back. And, um, and that, the heaviness and the grief that nobody wanted to talk about even before he died, even like before he even went overseas, like this, this sense in the country and in this small town. That there was this thing happening where it wouldn't be Christmas again until this was over, you know, like you couldn't really have pleasure, you couldn't really have joy and the kind of security that um, like life was going to be normal and enjoyable until this is over. And she said that kindness carried them in the sense that it made them think about other people. You know, because in those moments, it's so it's so tempting to just think of your your own pain, and you have every right to feel sorry for yourself. You know, she was she was a young widow, but just by thinking about her in laws as having lost their only son and trying to alleviate their pain, her pain it wasn't gone. In fact, it was like accentuated. So sometimes she had to just go be by herself um, because you're taking on not only your pain but someone else's pain. It's not like yours just goes away, but it it makes you able to bear it paradoxically because you are not just wallowing in it, you know, Um, because by by yourself, your own pain will destroy you. Your grief will just make you bitter, self-indulgent, selfish. But there is this human ability to transcend pain by taking on the pain of another person, kind of like an alcoholic can only stay um, free as long as they're helping other people get free. You know that's like the, one of the keys to AA is you have to, you have to help other people um, because that's sort of the meaning of life. And the problem with our addictions and attachments and stuff is that we're trying to make ourselves happy. Um, you have to give that up and become happy by trying to make other people happy, which is, it's just taking a Christian truth that God is love. We're made in the image of God to its practical conclusion. That like if you want to have a human life. You have to live it this way. But I thought it was particularly poignant in that, in the stress of war and the loss and the grief and everything. Um, There's an innocence in that, you know, even though you're, you're, you're not innocent anymore in the sense that, oh, nothing bad's ever going to happen. You're not a kid that just doesn't understand the world. You, You understand it deeply, but you can, you can remain childlike, like Joan of Arc does in that, in that scene. Like, oh, here's a, and she's like that with all the, the poor people too, when she's a little girl, isn't, doesn't she get in trouble with her mom or something for always like giving away her stuff? Cause she's just like, yeah. oh, this guy's, this guy's poor. So he needs it. And they, they think it's very complicated. No, you you don't, you know, you can't give it away. And she just, to her, everything's very simple. When someone's in need, you, you respond to the need. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. It makes me think of, um, y'all both read Stephen Pressfield's, the gates of fire, the battle of Thermopylae, the three. Oh yeah. Uh He talks about the Spartan women in there and I I know it's, he kind of made it up and, and added it into the story, but, uh, the strength of the Spartan women specifically is part of the, like the bedrock and foundation of the Spartan civilization. And actually in the book, Uh, there's a a cool interaction between Leonidas and one of the wives of a Spartan who was chosen to go and die, you know, one of the 300 that are chosen. And Leonidas actually says really clearly um, that he chose the 300 warriors, not for their courage, but because of their wives, because of the courage of their wives, meaning we all know what's going to happen here is they're going to go out and we're all going to die. And so we need strong women who are going to be able to bear the difficulty of the grief and suffering in order wow. to keep the civilization stabilized. Uh, yeah. So he's, it's like, it's super beautiful, but there's this, there's that strength in a, in a type of a toughness that, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's totally mysterious. It's only, a, it's a gift of, of, of women uh, and specifically of moms. But like a toughness and a tenderness that somehow comes together and provides like a strength to people and like the fabric of a certain society that I don't think anything else can replace. But yeah, I just looked it up right quick and here's one of the final lines of the conversation says, this is Leonidas talking to the, the Spartan woman. Why have I I nominated you, lady, to bear up beneath this most terrible of trials, you and your sisters of the 300? Because you can. It's like, dang. And Greece will break with them. But if you bear up dry-eyed, not alone enduring your loss, but seizing it with contempt for its agony and embracing it as the honor that it is in truth, then Sparta will stand. And all Greece will stand behind her. It's
0: beautiful. My uh, parking gate guy is calling me, but um, I found this uh, de Tocqueville quote. I remember, he, he wrote uh, "Democracy in America." He was a French guy that came over early in America and just to see what what this whole system looked like after our independence. At the end of the book. I recorded this in case I ever give like a women's talk. Um, he says, if I were asked, now that I'm drawing to the close of this work in which I have spoken of so many important things done by the Americans to what the singular prosperity and growing strength of that people ought mainly to be attributed, I should reply to the superiority of their women.
1: hmm. Yeah,
0: full stop. Here you guys carry the cast for the last uh, six minutes. Here, uh, I'm just gonna check in with this guy real quick. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. We got it.
0: Man, did this get way better or
1: what? No, this <laughs> <dog. clears throat> finally some freedom to talk. Yeah. Dang, uh, man, it it does make me think. Do you have any? Um, oh my gosh, he's in the background. Here. Yeah. this is the worst what a nightmare dude um a a couple of stories do come to mind of of my mom being yeah both just deeply loving but also like fiercely protective same Um,
2: same and not to um i wonder too if yeah because definitely same on that and especially the I think maybe the, uh, the Joan of Arc account that I, I started with too, of like, maybe the effective movement in me was, um, like just being so in awe of it of like, I, I couldn't, I don't think there's no way I could do that, man. Like Hmm. of what she did, but I guess that's kind of like the non-competitive nature of God through saints, of that was the experience the experience of reading this account of her is just like i'm back there's no oh nice um there's just no sense of like oh if i could only do that you know it's like being a saint is not being able to do everything perfectly it's just like in awe of like man thank you god for for her um Anyway, I didn't want to cut you off there about your, your but no, well,
1: yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that is. Um, but it, it it does make me think of, uh, sister Alicia though. Um, which I think she'd be very happy to hear she has been compared to Joan of Arc. Uh, (laughs) but like, if you go and watch her work downtown, working with the neighbors that they live, uh, in their neighborhood and, helping people in, like, very, very difficult situations and providing food for the for the hungry and clothes for the naked. I mean, like, living re- the gospel values in a radical, radical way. Well, and then if somebody tries to, like, if somebody tries to not just break the rules, but, like, get into the church early or take advantage of somebody that's down there, dude, sister, <laughs> she... She will lay the law. She's laid the law on me a couple of times. I'll tell you that much. You're Tough like, love. Tough love. It, but, right. But that's both of those things are love. Hmm. I remember her yelling at
2: you before. Oh, yeah.
1: She's yeah. yelled. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she would. try. Yeah, yeah. Totally out of love. <laughs> the l l for love thanks i love you too sister get to work i love you (laughs) (laughs) doing great keep it up i was a talker that's what i did she she knew that she knew that
2: they knew how to order your gifts by by the last couple years that i was there anyway
1: Mm -hmm. dude that's a good way to put it Mm -hmm. order the gifts Well, I got to
0: go. Well, should we let people know we're going to do uh, another clubhouse thing this afternoon? I'll try to get this up quick.
1: Yeah, it's uh, 10 o'clock Paris time
0: 10, 10, 10 p.m. Paris, 3 p.m. Central, 4 p.m. Eastern, and uh, 1 p.m. California in case Bishop oh. Barron wants to show up. Oh, good call. <laughs> good call. All right, dudes. All right. Later, skaters. Good talk. See ya.
1: Good girl.